following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. six messages on this first chapter so far, and we've got a ways to go, it looks like. <clears throat> but up to this point, um, Peter has wonderfully reminded uh, his readers of the, the glorious blessings of God that have come to them, these people who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He, He reminds them in the verses after that of the wonderful blessings that God has supplied for them. First of all, who we are. They're they're elect strangers in this world today. They reminded to us that we're just pilgrims passing through this place. But he also reminds them what God has done for them in verse 13. Three, he says he's given them a living hope of an inheritance that will not perish. Uh, verse 5, that we're protected until we receive that inheritance. It's a sure thing for those who are called by God. Uh, verse 7, that our trials are just purifying our faith until we receive that inheritance, that salvation that, that he has promised um, the second part of verse 7, that inheritance is the kingdom of God where we receive that honor ourselves, the glory we get to, our own glorification, we'll get to experience ourselves. And then that will happen when Jesus returns and makes that salvation complete. We see in verses 8 and 9. And then we looked at verses 10 through 12 as well, that the, the the prophets wished to understand that salvation that they were preaching about. They were preaching God's salvation and still uh, couldn't completely understand. They had to study their own writings. And, it's, and yet it was the same grace, the same salvation that the, that the apostles were preaching. And the angels in heaven are fascinated by it, he tells us in uh, verse 12. So the first verses of First Peter provide just a theological foundation, just the foundation of theology for us to understand what the rest of this letter is about. That theme being, uh, what is that theme there, Ben? Yeah, Christian living in a hostile world. It slipped my mind there for a minute. I knew it was something about hostility. And then Peter tells his readers, in effect, you know, God's chosen you and saved you, and you're privileged to live in that time of fulfillment. So set your hope, verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope on that salvation that's going to be consummated when Christ returns. And while you set your hope on that time and you live this life waiting for his return, what do you do? What do we do while we're doing all that? He says, set your hope. Then he says, be holy. That's the main, the main thought of 
these verses Josh just read for you. Be holy. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Live in holiness, because that is the standard for eternity. He just talked about eternity. He said, set your hope on the grace brought to you, the revelation of Jesus Christ when he comes again. Judgment takes place. Everything's said and done. We spend eternity. Live in holiness because that's the standard of eternity. Hope, set your hope. Hope motivates us, for lack of a better word, motivates us to live for eternity. Encourages us to live for eternity. Holiness guides us. It gives us the standard. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And even before he talks about holiness, which is the main thought, he says, as obedient children. It's our first thought today. Obedience is really a primary thought in Peter's mind as he writes to these exiles. It's the same word for obedience he uses in verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. And he uses it in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. It's the same word. He uses it three times in the first chapter. There is a bit of shade of difference in the translation and the literal meaning of Greg. It's not as obedient children. It's as children of obedience. In other words... You were born of obedience. The exhortation in verse 14 is not that God's children be obedient, but that they conduct themselves in such a way that the spirit of obedience lives in us. Children of obedience. You receive your nature. You receive your character from obedience. And so Peter sees that the readers of this letter, which would be all those people I mentioned to in verse 1, and you and me, and everybody in between, that the readers of this letter, as children of God's family, whose lives are characterized by obedience to Him, by obedience to their heavenly Father. We're the children. He's the Father. You know, children will typically, children in today's world, will typically manifest the characteristics, good or bad, the characteristics and the nature of their parents. But my two children are very awesome because they have taken on my awesomeness. It's very difficult as a child grows and as we watch them developed to be able to... It's not very difficult to see which parent they belong to in many ways. Like, again, all the positive aspects of my children come from me. All the... Never mind, I won't go there. 
But it's true. We take on the nature and characteristics of our parents. We are children of obedience. We take on the nature and characteristic of our father. Now, you used to belong to another family. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in work, at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see, we're sons of disobedience. We were children of wrath, and then God did a work in our lives, and we became children of obedience. So unbelievers are children of disobedience or children of wrath, while believers are children of light. We see in the Gospels, we see uh, also in Ephesians, Not only children of light, but here in Peter, children of obedience. You once belonged to another family, but now as obedient children, you bear the image of obedience. Once disobedience was your nature, but you couldn't help it. You were still responsible, but it was your nature. You couldn't do anything else but disobey at one time. But now your nature is obedience. That's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. It's that simple. You can always tell the difference. The character of the non-Christian is disobedience to God. The character of the Christian is obedience to God. Now, you may be thinking, that's the pattern of your life, obedience. And you might be thinking to yourself now, obedience isn't always the pattern of my life. There are times I disobey. I'm not sinless. Well, that's true. But you can't say disobedience is the pattern of your life. You're not a believer in that case. You wouldn't have a choice in the matter. Disobedience was the pattern of your life. Obedience is the pattern of your life because Christ is in you. But the reason that you're not always 100% perfectly obedient is because your obedience is clothed in sinful flesh. Your obedience is imprisoned in sinful flesh. So you are by nature obedient. You're called to be holy. But that obedience is imprisoned in this sinful world. The goal of every parent to have obedient children. And Peter says, having nothing to do with the former lust of your old family identity, where you were children of Satan, walking in darkness, bondage and sin with the world. So he says, be consistent with our new family identity. Be a chip off the old block, he says. In the response to the gospel, we see Peter puts it negatively and positively. The negative side, second part of verse 14, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't behave like you used to. 
Don't behave like children of wrath or children of disobedience anymore because you aren't. You're children of obedience. God has called you to be that. You know, in the case of the Gentiles, the ignorance, their former ignorance, how they formerly lived, it was characteristic by the first century pagan world. They acknowledged back in the first century, the pagans did, that gods existed. But these gods were unknowable. These gods were unconcerned with everyday life, unconcerned about man. And so since their gods were, the little g-gods were unknowable and unconcerned about man, then they could just follow their own desires, their own evil desires. There was no standard. And we know that Peter's writing to Gentiles. And so that's what he's talking about. They allowed their lives to be shaped by their own evil desires, own passions of your former ignorance. That's the Gentiles. He was also writing Jews who became believers. And they had a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They were ignorant. Their minds were darkened and they were ignorant of the truth of God, which was the reason they put Jesus on the cross. And so Peter says, don't be conformed to those, those days, those times. And we all have those times, don't we? Conform, that's the same word that Paul uses in Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Conformed to pattern one's life after. Don't pattern your life after the passions of your former ignorance. Strong's concordance says to fashion or shape one thing like another. Doing God's will is the opposite of doing what the unbeliever feels like doing. So don't go back to those former ways. Paul says in Romans 6:12, "Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions." You must make a complete break from your former life, your former self. And he's specific about that former ignorance, ignorance of God, ignorance of his ways, your pre-Christian selves. These passions dominate the pattern of your life. Epithemia is the Greek word used there. Passions or lust or evil craving. Strong's cause it desires or cravings or longings. Desire for what is forbidden. Lust. You see, non-Christians are morally corrupt. Further, they don't sin. They don't sin in some detached manner. They don't sin in some detached manner or with some indifferent attitude. It's their nature. They are driven by desires. Do you remember before you were saved? Driven by those desires? They're not in control of themselves. Sinful urges overpower them. Sinful urges direct their actions, direct their 
directions, their decisions. And that may seem harsh talking about unbelievers, but we were all there at one time. And this isn't still the most accurate way to describe it because these desires are so much a part of the unbeliever that they can't resist those desires. They're unable to resist them. They want to follow where those evil desires take them. They can't say no to them. Jesus says in John 8, 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So the unbeliever is morally corrupt. It's, it's what that one follows. Now, you have a discussion with an unbeliever and they want, to, want you to know that they're driven by knowledge and they're driven by decency and they're, they're driven by progress. But they're liars also. They're guided by ignorance, as Peter says. They're driven by evil desires. Peter uses this word in the negative sense. Those sinful desires which lead people to direct disobedience to God's law. Philip's translation, I like Philip's translation. It's almost amplified in many ways. Don't let your character be molded by the desires of your ignorant days. And we're to recognize those things for what they are. It's not like we just pull them out of our hat and make up the, what, what are those desires. We, we're told what they are. We recognize them for what they are. When you slip back into those times... As a child of obedience, when you slip back into those former, the, the passions of your former ignorant times, how do you know when you're doing that? Well, it gives us a list. Throughout the New Testament, we have a li- several lists. Galatians 5, 19-21. Now, the works of the flesh are evidence. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So the list goes on. I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And some of, those, some of that list we can look at and we can say to ourselves, I'm glad God delivered me out of that. And some of those things, although Paul uses strong words, could be turned into respectable sins. Remember those? It's a great book by Jerry Bridges. You might want to get respectable sins. Our John tells us in 1 John 2.16, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh... And the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4, 
For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that if you, you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Don't conduct your life as you once did before God saved you. Be like the one whose image you bear. Well, how do I get to be holy? That's the negative side. Are you depressed enough? There's a positive side. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Well, that all your conduct might be depressing too, but we'll see what we'll see what happens. He starts out with but. That's it's a strong word that reveals the contrast between what he said about your former self and what he says about holiness. Wayne Grudem describes it, According to the way or manner in which God is holy, you yourselves are to be holy, patterning your holiness after His. Hagios is the word used there. And the root of that word means different. God's holiness reveals more than His moral superiority, His moral perfection. It also stresses His, his transcendence. 1 Samuel 2.2, 2, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Isaiah 40:25 To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him says the holy one holy separate different and the one who is supremely holy stands on his own no one can compare to him no one is his equal there's a difference there's a separation holiness means to set apart Rather than conforming to those evil desires, children of obedience will want to be holy. To be a child of God means that it's, it's necessary to bear that family resist, re, resemblance in such a way that we're different. We're separated. God is totally separated from sin. That reminds us, when we think about God's holiness of Isaiah 6... Verse 3, one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And that is the standard of holiness for us. Since God is holy, His children are to be holy in all that they do. Their conduct, their behavior, their way of life. Peter's negative is don't act like you used to when you were a pagan. And his positive is act like God. It relates to this. It's even more than this, but it even relates to our sanctification. That's a theological term that describes this ethical change, this growth that takes place in the life of a believer. Sanctification involves the being delivered from the domination of evil in our lives and being transformed into the likeness of God. 
It means what Paul says in Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about those things. It has to do with our minds as well, not just our behavior. Set your hope, he says in verse 13, fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But live holy lives with minds that are continually focused on what's honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable. Excellence. God is the standard. Jesus reminded us in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Paul in Ephesians 5, 1, Be imitators of God as His children. That's a high standard, isn't it? John MacArthur says, We cannot be as holy as God is, but we can be holy because God is. We cannot be holy to the extent that God is, but we can have the same mind of purity that God has in smaller measure. Now, wait, I'm not, you're not, we're not letting you off the hook yet. How can that be? How can that be? Well, Peter tells us, because he called you. It's an emphasis on God's character and God's sovereign choice. And no one can come to the Father unless the Spirit draw him. It's another theological way of repudiating the idea that God accepts me because of my production. God accepts me because of my good works. God accepts me because of my performance. No, he called you of his own sovereign free will. And the one who called you to salvation has called you to holiness. You're to be like him. Paul, now, Peter uses that word called four other times in this letter. Reminds the readers over and over again that God initiated their salvation. What's he say? The very first, the very first verse, to those who are elect exiles... Second verse, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, again reminds us that He initiates our salvation. He does that when the gospel comes to us. The Holy Spirit regenerates us. And we receive that gift. And listen, it's always effective. It's always effectual. Every time in the New Testament you see the word call related to God's call to salvation, it's always an effectual call. Without fail, God never fails. Charles Simeon said the gospel is preached by him. He's talking about Paul in this case. The gospel is preached by him, both made provision for holiness and secured it against the possibility of failure. It's always effective. Verse 15 out of Philip's. But be holy in every department of your lives. Holiness is not a list of things. It's not about actions. 
as much as it is about attitude. Difficult to describe, but I think this might help. Jesus said in Luke 10, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. We fall, and when we start talking about holiness, we, we fall into the trap of thinking being holy is an activity. I'm holy if I pray daily. I'm holy if I do my daily Bible reading. I'm holy if I do my devotions every day. Oh, I skipped a day. I need to work on holiness in my life. I'm holy if I go to church. Then I'm being holy. I'm holy if I help somebody, if I give to the poor. Listen, the Pharisees did that. They had activity down. But it wasn't, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And you say to me, well, you're talking about it's attitude more than actions, but he says your conduct in this verse. Alistair Begg says, Holy actions will flow from holy attitudes, but holy attitudes will not come from holy actions. Holiness is impossible without the family likeness, without being children of obedience. And positively, we, we seek to imitate a holy God who called us to be holy, to be holy in our behavior, to be holy in our thoughts, to be holy in our words, to be holy in our actions. And it's set apart from sin to God, striving for sinless living. What a goal. That's the standard, striving for sinless living, namely purity. Now, Peter wasn't telling the readers of this letter that they're living unholy lives, but that holiness is what should mark their lives. That verse contains the first word, uh, first time, uh, the key word conduct or behavior. Some of your translations may say behavior. is used in First Peter. That's, an, that's really a new thought in the pagan world. Those that are reading this letter understand it more. But it's really a new thought in the pagan world. Because the, the, the God of the Bible is so radically different from the pagan gods I mentioned to you earlier. They were unknowable. They weren't concerned about man. So these pagans could just go their own, follow their own evil dreams. Jeremiah Clark says, Heathenism scarcely produced a God whose example was not the most abominable. Their greatest gods especially were paragons of impurity. There was no example. There was no standard. So they could just go their own way. And like Paul was talking about at the beginning of Romans 6. Remember he said, since sin, since grace is so great, can't we keep on sinning? God's will has always been that His children reflect His character. The goal of Christianity is not only 
heaven when we die. That's not just the goal. Set your hope. That's not just the goal. Christ-likeness now. And we don't talk about it very much. But as our culture continues to fall into the sewer, persecution becomes more challenging to believers, holiness will become more and more vital to live out our days here on earth. Jesus' task was not only forgiveness of sins, but the restoration of the image of God in fallen man. And we must always be suspicious of an an assurance of salvation that lacks Christ-likeness. We should always be suspicious of a what's-in-it-for-me Christianity. And as all that wasn't challenging enough for us, one word I haven't even mentioned yet, he says, in all your conduct. All. It's not a selected righteousness. It's a pervasive holiness. John tells us in 1 John 3, 3, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. It's pervasive in our lives. Our calling as Christians is to imitate the trait of holiness. God's made us different. God has set us apart. Now He commands us to live out that difference in this world, in our lives, this day. Matthew Henry says, Holiness is the desire and duty of every Christian. It must be in all affairs, in every condition, and towards all people. We must especially watch and pray against the sins to which we are inclined. And you know what they are. And Satan knows what they are. He knows what buttons to push, doesn't he? As children of obedience, we can't conform to those evil desires while we were non-Christians. Now we can throw off the mold to think differently and behave differently. Now we can live in obedience to the truth and not slaves to all our sinful desires, all our sinful urges, all those things contrary to God's will. But when that happens, you'll become an eyesore to the world. When that happens, you'll become an offense to unbelievers. We don't try to be different for the sake of being different. You don't have to look like John the Baptist or dress like him or eat the stuff he ate. We don't have to try to be different for the sake of being different. If we will only be obedient to the truth, we'll be different enough. Testimony time. You know what I've just begun to discover in this election cycle? God help us. Now, besides that, that what we're facing is a reflection of our culture. This post-Christian culture we find ourselves living in. It should be encouraging to us and not depressing to us.
and I'm working on that. I feel like in many ways that I am naturally being separated from this post-Christian culture. We'll continue to move away, this culture that moves away from biblical truth and moving away at the speed of light, I might add. It's going to make it even more challenging to live the Christian life. You know, holy means separate. But it's not even been a part of my consciousness. It's happened naturally. You could say the world's moving away from Frank or Frank's moving away from the world. I don't really know how to say it. It seems to be happening naturally. I don't know if you sense that in your life. I sure have. A part of me gets depressed and I want to crawl in a hole and just wait for the end to come or for Jesus to come, one or the other. But God wants us to display our family likeness in this dark world. God wants us to display our family likeness as children of obedience like never, ever before. These are great times for the church. Peter tells us who we are later in this in this letter, in 1 Peter 2, 9, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What better time to proclaim those excellencies than today? And then simply, Why? Why do we be holy? Verse 16. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Why am I to be holy? Because God said so. It's written. Matthew Henry says the written word of God is the surest rule of a Christian life. And by this rule, we are commanded to be holy every way. You're to be like God because he said so. Now, where is it written? What was Peter talking about? It is written. Leviticus 11. It's not a new requirement. It's a repeated requirement over and over and over In Scripture, holiness in the Old Testament sense was not sinlessness, but it was conformity to the covenant relationship God had with His people. In the New Testament, it's Christ-likeness. But here's where it's written, Leviticus 44, 45. For I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. 45, for I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. He says it in Leviticus 19. Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Leviticus 20. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy. And have separated you from the peoples. That you should be mine. Be consistent with the character of God who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
our standard's not the world. Our standard's not even other Christians. Oh, I, how many times do you say, I wish I could be as holy as he is or she is. That's just putting on yourself how to be an average Christian. Not even your best Christian role models are helpful. They're all deficient. We've lost the sense of the majesty of God. We've lost the sense, as we saw in Isaiah 6, God sitting on the throne high, lofty, exalted. We want to know God as our father, maybe little F father and friend in a familiar sense. But we don't want to know the God who inhabits eternity. Do you really want to be holy? I think that being holy might... Here's a way to answer that question. It points us back to verse 13, which was last week's text. Set your hope fully on the grace that were brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope on when Christ returns. Set your hope on when Christ comes again. But you know, if we're honest with ourselves, I would think that most of us in our room really don't want it to happen anytime soon because we enjoy this world too much. Oh, come, Lord Jesus, but not today. Maybe not tomorrow. We'll see how today goes. Oh, come, Lord Jesus, not right now. Can you wait until the grandchildren come? I'd like to experience grandchildren. We wanted to buy a house. Can you wait? I wanted to enjoy retirement a bit first. Just hang on a bit. Come, come, Lord Jesus. But there's some plans I have. Can you hang on a while longer? All of those things... And many, many more things are the passions of your former ignorance. Do you want to be holy? Well, you can answer that question. If you set your hope fully on the grace of His coming again. The psalmist said, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on the earth that I desire besides you. He goes on to say, My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Peter's reminder of the father-child theme, children of obedience, in this context, and he talks about it again. In verse 17, and if you call on him as father, Pastor Greg will preach next week. His reminder of this father-child theme in this context is appropriate, for it's the nature of children to want to imitate their parents. And we should delight in imitating our Heavenly Father to be like Him. Is the best way to be. The best. You think about that. 
I read this week John Welsh, who was a Puritan, Scott, Scottish Puritan, and he's the son-in-law of John Knox, founder of the Presbyterian Church. He ended all his sermons this way, and I end this for you. Now let the Lord give his blessing to his word, and let the Spirit of Jesus, who's the author of this truth, come in and seal up the truth of it in your hearts and souls for Christ's sake. That's our prayer. We'll sing a hymn in a moment and encourage you. If you have questions, there'll be elders and others in the back to receive you if you need someone to pray with you. You make your way back there while we sing this closing hymn. Father, seal up that truth in our hearts. Make us holy. Make us your people. Make us imitators of Christ. We can only do that, Father, if we're children of obedience, born of obedience. I pray, Father, for the one here today who is not a child of obedience, continually enjoying their sinful life, passions of their former ignorance, passions of their present ignorance, We pray that you'd do a work in their hearts this day. By the power of your Spirit, call them to yourself. For your glory and your glory alone. And even as we declare this truth across the world, around the world, across the lands, we pray, do it in us by your power. In the name of Jesus, amen.